Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? And then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. This is God's word. Now, we've been talking actually ever since the fall. We, we mentioned that in this, in this uh, country right now, there's probably more ex public expressions and uh, acknowledgement of so many people of being spiritually thirsty, uh, of, of having a, a spiritual longing. There's more of that going on in our society now than probably has been in decades at least. Jesus directly addresses that here, here in John 4. Uh, Jim Boyce is a pastor of uh, 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, and he's been in Philadelphia for 30 years at least, and so he knows a lot about the topography, he knows a lot about Philadelphia, and he tells us this. If you are going down the beautiful River Drive alongside of the Schuylkill River, if you're driving down the River Drive sort of into the heart of Philadelphia, you come to an area called Boathouse Row. And right at Boathouse Row, there is a statue, you can see from the, the road, from your car, there's a statue of a pilgrim holding a Bible. And uh, one thing you can't see from the, the uh, car, you'd have to actually walk over to see it, is right near the pilgrim, there is a stream of water. 
And the stream of water comes down from a hill, and it empties into the Schuylkill River. But there's a path there. So if you walk the path, you can walk up the stream to its source. You can walk up Sedgley Hill to its source. And when you come to its source, you'll find there's a spring there, an old spring. And the city of Philadelphia, years ago, created a little stone viaduct there for the spring. And someone of the city of Philadelphia, Corps of Engineers or whoever did it, put an inscription in stone over the spring, and the inscription reads, Whosoever drinketh of this water will thirst again. (laughs) And it's the first half of this remarkable statement in verse 13, 14. The second half, of course, is Jesus saying, But whosoever drinketh the water I shall give will never thirst. Now, what is the living water? I mean, that's what the woman was asking. What is this? What, what is he talking about? What is it that can completely, um, can completely fulfill and assuage, as the old hymn says, our spiritual thirst? Now, he says in verse 10 to her, if you knew the gift of God and the one who asks you for a drink. And the word know, biblically, always means understand. He says, you need to understand if you're going to get this living water. You need to understand the gift. And this text helps us understand. And here's what it, we learn. We have to understand these four things. If you're going uh, to know the living water that Jesus talks about, you have to understand these four things. First, it's a surprise. At the very beginning, the woman's surprised. You see in verse 9, what are you talking to me for? At the very end, verse 28, it says, the, the, the disciples were surprised. You see, they come back and they're just surprised. What are they, why is everybody shocked and surprised? Because Jesus is deliberately reaching out across a, every, every social, cultural, moral, and religious barrier to a woman that she, he shouldn't have anything to do with on three counts. First of all, she's a Samaritan. The Samaritans and the Jews were complete enemies at that time. The Samaritans were looked at by the Jews as racial inferiors and dangerous heretics who had melded Judaism with paganism and they'd come up with a terrible religion. They built a temple on Mount Gerizim that they said is the true temple of God. And the Jews had come and destroyed that temple. I mean, and and, and as it says right here, the Jews and, and Samaritans did not associate. Yet she, I mean, the average Jew would never have taken anything from the hand of a Samaritan. So she's surprised and shocked. But secondly, not only is he a Jew and she's a Samaritan, but he is a man and she's a woman. And verse 28 reminds us of what terribly low status women had in all those ancient cultures. Whether Roman or Greek or Jewish or Samaritan, verse 28, the disciples are amazed because it was considered absolutely beneath a man to be talking to a woman in public. And thirdly, Not only was he a Jew and she a Samaritan and he a man and she a woman, but here's something else going on. Why is she there alone? I mean, most of us, not knowing the customs of the time, we read this and it doesn't strike us, but it should. Because all the commentators tell you, this is very weird. First of all, she's come alone. Women always came to draw water, which is a, an arduous task. You had to get a great big uh, uh, you know, pot. The water was all, you, your, your home need, all your home use for cooking, for cleaning, for bathing, the whole thing. And the women always came together. And they never came in the sixth hour, which was noon, at the height of the sun. But they came early in the day or late in the day. What is she doing coming in the, at the worst time in the day when there's nobody else there, of course, But you see, everybody comes early or late when it's cool. What is she doing alone? And the answer is, she was a moral and social outcast. 
She was living with a man. She had multiple husbands. She, she was into serial marriage, you know, but beyond that, she, had, she was living with a man that was not her husband, and by Samaritan moral codes, by Jewish moral codes, that was utterly unacceptable. And the reason she was alone was partly because nobody would draw water with her, partly because she did not want to draw water with anybody else. That's why she went. It was the only time of the day when she'd be alone, when it was the hottest. She was socially, morally isolated. He was a Jew. She was a Samaritan. He was a man. She was a woman. He was a teacher of God, of righteousness, of the law. She is a moral and social outcast. And he deliberately, to every single barrier that, that morality, that traditional religion, that society, that culture, would put between them, she was on the outside of every single inner ring. She was, on, she was a gender outsider, see? She was a moral outsider. She was a religious outsider. She was a heretic. She was a racial outsider. She was an outsider. She was an outlaw. He was an insider. And he blows through every single one of those barriers and says, let's know each other. That's why everybody's surprised. And this is not an isolated incident, of course, in the life of Jesus. You know, without, without going into hundreds and hundreds, don't forget one, one more like this. Jesus was raised from the dead, and he was in that garden. He was risen from the dead on Easter morning. And Peter and John, everybody's walking around. What's going on? What's going on? And Jesus waits for them all to leave. And he very deliberately chooses one person in the whole world to be the first witness of his resurrection, Mary Magdalene. Again, somebody on the outside of every single barrier that the world puts up. He was a man. She was a woman. He was a great teacher of righteousness. She was what? Not a pillar of the community. She was a reformed mental patient and probably a prostitute. You see? She was a lay person, not clerical, not a clergy person. And yet Jesus Christ chooses her as the first witness to his resurrection at a time when he knew in that culture women's testimony, women's witness wasn't even admissible evidence in court. That's the low estate with which they were regarded. Why does he do this? If you knew the gift of God, you'd know. The reason he does this, the reason he repeatedly does this, is because his living water is a gift. His living water is grace. His living water is not given on the basis of merit, of pedigree, of class, of status, of race, of gender pecking order, because Christianity is therefore a surprise. Everybody's shocked. Everybody's surprised. Why? Because religion, morality, culture, there's no surprise. Religion, morality, and culture and, and will tell you this. We know who, who meets God. We know who has mystical experiences. The people who go into their cell and pray. The people who purify their hearts. The people who read the mystical writings. The people who deny themselves and sacrifice. The good people. The people who really seek. Right? That's what religion will tell you. That's what morality will tell you. That's what, that's what culture, what society will tell you. There's no surprise. We know who meets God. People who purify themselves. Look at this woman. She's living an irreligious life. There's no spiritual searching. There's no praying. There's no crying out. He keeps saying, you know, you're spiritually thirsty. Over and over and over again here, she says, what, 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 what? <laughs> you know. On that day, she was not going into her cell and pray. She was not, she was not uh, uh, purifying her heart. She was not reading and struggling and crying out to God. She was not denying herself. She was not trying to discipline herself for godliness. No. On that day, what did she do? She wanted to get water from the well. 
that was the highest purpose of her heart. Ordinary day, just walking along. But when she left that well, her life was totally revolutionized. She had met the Christ. And she, when she ran away from that well, she became, that moment, one of the most famous people in the history of the world. You know, if the world is still here a thousand years from now, <laughs> nobody's going to know about any one of us, but they're still going to know about her. Wait a minute. How could this be? She wasn't praying. She wasn't seeking. No, that's, that's Christianity. That's grace. You see, because, because Christianity is grace by definition, it's filled with surprises all the time. You see, that's it. What does this mean? Why did she meet him on that day? Why the most unlikely person? Why? Because Christianity is grace. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. Anyone, anywhere can meet him. Anyone, anywhere can have him. It doesn't matter whether you've been living on the inside, just, just inside the gates of hell. It doesn't matter to what degree of degradation you've been. Christianity is a matter of grace. That's why it's always a surprise. So let's just uh, apply this and move on quickly to the other points. First of all, I want you to remember something. If Christianity is a religion of grace, if the living water is a gift, if the living water is the gift of God, first of all, you know what this means? This means when you come into the church, I want you to leave something at the door. Out there, what matters is all these distinctions, class and race and gender and moral performance. You know, one, one thing that irks me so much is when I hear people say, and if some of you are saying this in your heart right now, sorry. You look and say, oh, how wonderful. Jesus was enlightened about women. He's, as, he's almost as good as we are today. You know, he's, caught, you know, he's sort of caught up to us. He was a man ahead of his time. My dear friends, no time has ever caught up with Jesus. Yeah, our time, our time, 1998, 1999, we're, yes, 1999, we're, we're uh, yes, of course, our view of, of, of women is more enlightened than, than the view back then, but there's all sorts of other ways. Listen, now, what you look like means far more than it used to. There's, there's not gender preference, but there's all kinds of appearance preference. There's, it's much more important, your pedigree, your education, your attainment. You see, we don't live in a traditional society where people were always prejudiced against people on the basis, more on the basis of race and gender. We live in a meritocracy. And now the way you look and the way you dress and who you know and what you've achieved, when you come into the church, you must leave those distinctions at the door. We must not be so blind as to be influenced by them. We must not look at somebody and say, well, there's a leader. We must not look at somebody and say, there's a sharp person. Look at somebody else and say, oh my goodness, what is he or she doing in here? Leave those at the door. They mean nothing now. And if they still mean something to you, you're denying the gospel of grace. You're denying the very reason that you were brought in. And secondly, if Christianity is grace, then it's <laughs> we don't have a push-button God. Get ready for adventure. You see, if, you, if, you have, if your salvation is by works, then you, can, you, you have a push-button God. God will not use you unless you're praying, unless you're living a good life. God can't use that person because that person has unconfessed sin in his or her life. You see, you know, we have a push-button God. We know just what we have to do. Do we have a revival? We have to do these things. If we want God to work in our lives, we have to do these things. Push-button God. But if, the religion, if Christianity is a religion of grace, he's not a tame lion. You can't tape him up. You can't put him in a box. There's no push-buttons. You can't say, well, he couldn't work in my life because of this or that. Sometimes a light surprises Christians when they sing. It is the sun who rises with healing in his wings. You're continually surprised. Hey, every time you come to church, who knows what could happen? You know what Christianity is? 
You're just sauntering along and suddenly there's the Lord and his light. You're, you're lifted up into new realms and your life is changed forever. Why? Because he's a God of grace. You'll never get the living water unless you see that. Secondly, more briefly, it's not only a surprise, but secondly, it is ultimate satisfaction. The living water comes by grace, but what is it? It's ultimate satisfaction. When he says, I am here to give you living water, he's talking about something more than forgiveness of sins. What's he talking about? Well, put it this way. We don't live, as they did, in an arid climate. Most of us have never been truly, truly thirsty, life-threateningly thirsty. Most of us have never seen anybody die of dehydration or get close to it, but they had. And so you see, this is a much more vivid metaphor for them. We're going to have to put our imaginations on here. We have to work a little bit at it. Do you know what it means to die of dehydration? We are made of water. Our bodies are made of water. <laughs> and therefore, we have more of an immediate need for water than we do for food. If you don't have any water and you don't have any food, you're going to die of dehydration before you're going to die of starvation. And what happens when you start to die of dehydration? You see, your body is made of water. It is water, and so it begins to cry out. Every fiber, every nerve... And your tongue swells up so you can't swallow. Your throat becomes on fire and it's almost like the, the sun out there that's beaten down on your outside comes on the inside and you, and, and, you, and you just feel this enormous searing pain burning inside and finally you lay yourself down and you die in utter torment. And Jesus Christ has the audacity to say, I have something that your soul needs every bit as much, if not more, than your body needs water. Boy, how much does your body need water? I just told you how much. But he says, I've got something that your soul needs even more than your body needs water. And he says, if you go to any other source, your thirst will just get worse. I watched a, a movie the other day, uh, an old Clark Gable, Joan Crawford movie. And in it, there's a whole bunch of... Uh, of people who are essentially dying of thirst in a boat and they don't have much of a chance. There's a cask of water that had fallen overboard and they fished it back out and they realized they might make it to land if there's water in that cask. Uh, but, and they're dying of thirst, you know, their tongues are beginning to swell up, but the problem, they, they also realize there's a good probability that there's nothing but salt water in that cask. And here's the trouble. Somebody has to at least take a sip of that salt water to find out if it's salt water or fresh water. But if it's salt water, that person is going to die of thirst faster. If it's salt water, that person's tongue is going to immediately swell up and they're going to fall down dead. But somebody's got to do it. And one man just does it, and it's salt water. And he just falls down, just lays down and dies. And what Jesus is saying is, if you put the bucket of your soul into any other cause more than my cause, into any other relationship more than my relationship with me, into any other hope, into any other rest, into any other beauty, more than me, you're going to die of thirst even faster. And then he has the audacity to say, but the water I give you will not just make you feel better, but it will become in you a spring welling up to eternal life. And this is a remarkable promise. What he's saying here is, human beings without Jesus Christ have to go out of themselves they have to go out into the world, into circumstances. For example, what, do you, what is a spiritual thirst? Well, you thirst for purpose, right? You can't just have a job. You need purpose in life. But what, 
If you're not living for him, what's your purpose going to be? Well, you might live for your family, you might live for your job, you might live for some political cause, but you're having to go outside. And what happens if that political cause goes down the drain? What happens if your family blows up? What happens, and of course these things do happen, then what happens? You see what happens? You die of thirst. You have to go out of yourself. You see, your life is incredibly fragile and unstable. You, you thirst not just for purpose, you thirst for beauty, you thirst for love, love. But even if you find great person to love, that person isn't always welcoming, that person isn't always accepting, and that person, unfortunately, is mortal as well as sinful. And what does it mean? He is saying, I can give you a purpose, a love, a peace, a hope, and a beauty that permanently wells up from within you. Of course you want to live for your family in some, to some degree. Of course you want to live for, for justice in the world to some degree. But here's what's so beautiful about this image. You can never, ever, ever, ever build on or clog up a spring. You can fill in a well, right? And build on a well, but don't you ever build on a spring. Because you can't fill up a spring. You can, no matter how much junk you throw in a spring, it's going to bubble on through. And Jesus is saying, I can give you in me a spiritual purpose, a spiritual love, a spiritual acceptance, a spiritual peace, a spiritual beauty, that no matter what happens, no matter how much your family blows up, no matter what you face in this life, no matter what happens in circumstances, all the junk, all the gunk, you throw it on in there, and my joy will bubble on through. It reminds me of a character in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. It's Gandalf. And one of the little Hobbits looks at Gandalf and he notices that Gandalf's pretty upset but he looks deeper and he says in the wizard's face he saw only lines of care and sorrow but under there was a great joy, a fountain of mirth, enough to set a kingdom laughing. That's a Christian. Doesn't matter how much junk is on the outside on the top, there's a spring that my living water will become a spring within you, welling up to eternal life. Eternal. Can't stop it. Can't stop it. That's it. That's what's offered. So you have to understand that it's a surprise, total gift of grace. You have to understand it's, the, it's ultimate satisfaction. Thirdly, you have to understand that it comes in stages. Now this text is nice and long because we have here an, a wonderful, and I don't have time to show you. If you come to the Q&A afterwards, if you don't have to go to other, any other class, come to Q&A. We can trace it out. It is remarkable to see how gently, in and, and like eight or nine or ten interchanges, Jesus Christ gently, bit by bit by bit, draws her from complete spiritual indifference, from complete spiritual obtuseness. Now, this is sheer grace. She's not seeking. She's not looking. For com from complete spiritual obtuseness into spiritual reality. Bit by bit by bit by stages. And if you look through your own life, after you've really studied this, you'll see he was doing the same to you. This always happens in stages. Oh, there's a moment where you cross the line. But, but up, to the, up to the line, there's stages. And let me just show you what the four are. But they're very important. First of all, he gets her alone. You know, it's interesting. He would never have had this conversation with her if, there were, if she had come with a bunch of women, right? He would never have gotten into this kind of intimate conversation, this kind of long conversation. No way. No way. Well, how did he get her alone? Well, she got herself alone. How did she get alone? By screwing up her life. That's why she's alone. That's why she's isolated. But don't you see what he's done? He's used her screw-ups. To get her alone. What does that mean? Some of you know what I mean. When you're successful, you've got a lot of people around you. When, you're, when you feel like you're doing very well, you know, you're busy. 
You don't sit around and think about the meaning of life. You don't sit around and say, I wonder if there is a God. I wonder if Jesus is there. I wonder what I'm really living for. You don't ask the big questions. You're busy. You're happy. But when you screw up, it gets you alone with him. It makes you think, isn't it wonderful? See? First thing, he's got to get you alone. He's got to get you one-on-one. He's got to get you to start thinking about the big things that almost always happens through screw-ups. How wonderful. Secondly, second thing he does is he gets intellectual interest. He starts asking, you know, giving her riddles and things to get her going, you know? And one thing we learn here is Christianity is far more than intellectual, but it's not less. It's far more than thinking and reasoning and thinking things out. Oh, my goodness, it's far more than that. But it's not less than that. And you don't have a real experience of Jesus Christ that leaves the brain out. You also can't have a real experience of Christ. It's just the brain. But he gets her thinking. And that's what happens to us. We kind of come along. You know, things that we used to think were not very important to us. We're kind of bored with religion, faith stuff. Ah. But when he starts to get you alone, you start to get interested. And you start to get, at least theoretically, academically, you you don't mind coming to a a service. You don't mind reading a book. You don't mind sort of talking to somebody about religion. Good, great. But then, finally, he gets personal. And in verse 15, she's come as far as she can come. He keeps saying, living water, living water. And she says, living water? You mean water that I can get back home so I don't have to walk up this hill to this well? You see, at verse 15, it's as far as she can get. She can say, you keep talking about living water. I just, I just want, wa- I want running water. <laughs> you, see? Uh, you know, I'm a housewife. I want running water. I don't know, the first one on my block was running water. You keep talking about sort of spiritual thirst. You know, that's not my problem. Physical thirst is my problem. And Jesus says, go get your husband. Now, why would he change the subject? He didn't. He didn't change the subject. You know, some people say, well, Jesus was starting to say, okay, let's talk about your sin. But that's not the, that's not the tone. He never says anything about his, her sin, actually. He's convicting her. He's not condemning her. I'll tell you what's going on. The key to understanding what he's doing is that he's not changing the subject. This is not a complete, uh, you know, uh, non sequitur. He's not saying, well, let's, let's go on to some other subject. No, 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 no. She says... I'm not spiritually thirsty. That's not my problem. And he says, oh yeah? Go get your husband. Well, I don't have a husband. No, he says. No. Men have been running your life for years. It's not just one man. It's men. And I want you to know, you don't think you're spiritually thirsty, but you deeply thirst for God. You deeply thirst for closure, for acceptance, for significance. You just don't recognize it for what it is. You are deeply thirsty, but you are drinking at the fountain of male relationships and approval and sex. See, what he's doing here, this is very, very typical. Some of you believe this, and he's going to show you why you're wrong right now. Some of you say, I wish I had faith. You know, I, I find it pretty interesting. It'd be great if I could really believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ says you do not have to create saving faith. All you have to do is transfer it from where you've already got it. You don't have to, you don't, you don't have to wump up adoration of me. You just have to transfer it from where it, where it is now. Someplace you're drinking deep. Someplace you're, trying, you're going for that spiritual purpose. Someplace you're going for that spiritual deep love. Close your arms around you. 
Now, in her case, it happens to be men. But it's not the only one by any means. What is that? Let's not pick on women and let's not pick on sex. Your career. Your appearance. Hmm? Acceptance by friends. Hmm? Getting into an inner ring. Really making a difference. Political causes. Who knows? See? Money. Wealth. Status. Control of your life. Who knows? But until you go and get it, see, you're never going to find his living water unless you go see where you're drinking now. You're never going to find him unless you find your idols. You're, you're going to have indifference. You're going to be like her. You're going to say, I'm not spiritually thirsty. I'm not spiritually thirsty. He says, oh, yeah, go and get. There is some place, there is somewhere that you have bonded in, that you have invested in, you've stuck the bucket of your soul down there, and she says, he says, I know what it is for you. Do you see why this is convicting and not condemning? Of course he's telling her about something that she's doing wrong. But he's not just saying, let's just talk about your sin, lady. Condemn. No. What is he saying? He's saying, let's take a look at your false masters, your pseudo-savior, your pseudo-saviors, your broken earthly cisterns that you're going to instead of the well of eternal life, the spring of eternal life. And then finally, he says, I am he. See how he's brought her along? And he's going to have to do the same thing with you. Do you hear me, everybody? He has to get you alone. He has to in, get you intellectually engaged. Then he's got to show you where you've already got your hopes. And then he can finally say, here's the living water. Until you've gone through all that, it's not going to happen. Look at your life. Instead of saying, gosh, why is God letting this or that bad thing happen to you? Maybe he's just getting you alone. Maybe he's actually going. Maybe right now he's saying, go and get your husband. And come back. Why? He's saying, there's no way that he's going to be able to give you what I can give you. Go and get your career. Go and get your romance. Go and get your whatever. Hmm? Go, and get your, go and get marriage. Go and get family. Go and get whatever. Bring it back. There's no way. Put him right alongside. Put me right alongside of it. No way. That it can give you what I can give you. Now lastly, one of the big questions that comes up, very important question. How can this just be a gift for anybody? How can it be a gift for anybody? How is that possible? I can't go for anyone. Some people say, this just isn't right. I mean, and it, and it isn't right. If you, if you break, God invented you, you owe to live for him. And if you haven't been living for him, if you've been living, basically you've hijacked your own life, you're living as if you're your own God, you're sinning against him. And sin means payment. But Jesus Christ points to it. Jesus Christ shows us why this great living water is available for anybody. Anybody at all, no matter what you've done. She says to him, in one last effort to kind of get off the subject of, of her personal relationship to him, she says, Sir, I see that you're a prophet. Let's get back, on to, let's, let's, let's get back into a religion bull session here, please. Let's get away from all this. And so, it says, you know, what is the, you know what the great theological issue of the day is here? Which mountain should we be worshiping on? Should we be worshiping on Mount Gerizim, which is where the Samaritans built their temple? Or should we worship in Jerusalem, where the Jews have their temple? Where do we worship God? Now, Jesus does not say, your temple's the right one, but he doesn't say, our temple's the right one. He doesn't say, Samaritan's culture is better. He doesn't say, Jewish culture is better. But, he doesn't say, you don't need a temple. You say, well, of course he does. No, he doesn't. A lot of people read this and say, well, Jesus is saying, God is a spirit, so you can worship him anywhere. No, he doesn't say that. He says, the hour is coming, and now is. 
See, if Jesus was saying, oh, hey, God is everywhere, you don't need a temple, why would he be saying, until before now you did? But the hour is coming. What would the hour be that would change this? And the answer is, in the book of John, the hour is, the, is Jesus' death. Every time, John chapter 2, John chapter 5, John chapter 16, John chapter 12, John chapter 17, you'll see it. When Jesus talks about his hour, he means the hour of his death. And how is it? See, what Jesus is saying is, you do need a temple, but I'm the temple. You need a place of sacrifice. You need a place where sin has been paid for. Otherwise, the living water can't come to everybody. Well, how is Jesus the temple? Because of this. There's a foreshadow here. She would never have found the living water if Jesus wasn't thirsty. Jesus comes up to her and says, I'm thirsty. And that's how the whole thing goes, that she finds, finally finds living water. But you see, that's not the last time, is it? that he says, I thirst. On the cross and his hour, when he says, I thirst, it was the big thirst. It was the real thirst. In the book of Nahum, it says, who can dwell with everlasting burnings? For his justice is poured out like fire. The sun that dehydrates us and puts us into a torturous death by thirst physically it's just a picture of what happened to Jesus Christ on the cross. Because the wrath of God, the justice of God, eternal justice, greater than 10 million sons, came, came down right onto him. And he died of thirst. Because, you see, the favor in the face of God is what we need. It's the water we need. It's what we're built for. And to, ha and to have it removed means you just dry up. And on the cross, you know, in Psalm 22... He quotes Psalm 22 on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But you know what? Go on in Psalm 22, and this is what Psalm 22 says, and he had it in his mind. I am poured out like water. My strength is dried up like a pot's herd. My tongue cleaves to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. And here's what he did. He died of thirst so we could have the living water. He had the ultimate spiritual thirst. He died in torment so that we could have the cool water of the favor of God. That's the reason why. The hour has come that now we have a temple anywhere. Doesn't matter your culture, doesn't matter your pedigree, doesn't matter your record, doesn't matter your race, doesn't matter your gender. Not because all good people everywhere can come to God because he's so spiritual, but because the hour has come and now is that I died of thirst so that you could have a spring of water, living water, welling up to eternal life. How do you know if you've received the living water? Well, look at her. Look what happens to her. Look. Number one. He means everything to her. He runs, she runs off. What does she say? Come, see a moral code that's changed me. No, come and look at him. Secondly, she likes repentance. This is a real key to knowing whether you've received the living water. She says, come and see a man who what? Told me everything I ever did. She's happy about this? This was a pleasant experience to be told about all of her men? How in the world could she be talking so happily about this? Is, this is how you know you're a Christian. Relativists don't believe in repentance and moralists utterly hate it. it makes, it's, it's abnormal. Oh my goodness, I screwed up. I have to repent. But Christians know that repentance is the way to break the chains that false saviors and false masters have on us. She's happy. She loves it. She said, I, come down here and let's, maybe you can repent too. That's the way you know you're a Christian. And look at this. She goes to the people that she's been avoiding. She doesn't care. She doesn't care what they think anymore. She has a totally new self-image. And more than that, she must love them in spite of how they've treated her. So there's no command here. Jesus doesn't say, woman, get up. 
Yes, Lord. Now, go witness to all those people that have abused you. Do I have to? Yes, because it's the only way you're going to get into heaven. I mean, no. You know, she knows the gift of God. He doesn't tell her. He doesn't tell her. She loves the people that abused her. She doesn't care what they think. She loves repentance. And she leaves her water pot behind. That doesn't mean she's never going to get it. But he's first now. Friends, at least can you come this far tonight? Can you at least say what she said in verse 15? Give me the living water, though I don't know what the heck it is. <laughs> and if you even say that, he'll show you. Christian friends, how many of you have tasted the living water, but it's not really yet a spring welling up within you? You know that Jesus theoretically should mean everything to you, but you're going outside and you are, you're getting your purpose and you're getting your love and you're getting all kinds of things from outside and that's the reason why you're up and down. Put him first. And if there's anybody here who says, oh, you know, I'm so, I'm, I'm so bad. I'm so messed up. You don't know how messed up I am. If you knew, you wouldn't be talking so hopefully to me about all this stuff. Dear friends, John chapter 3, which we'll look at next week. Nicodemus, great man, religious leader, knows the word of God, comes, and Jesus says, you must be born again. And he walks away kind of like, huh. And he doesn't really get it to the end of the book, to the end of the life of Jesus. And here is this woman, the biggest mess compared to Nicodemus, and she's changed, she's revolutionized, she's running out, she's got love in her heart, she's got a whole new self-image, everything. Well, why, would she, why would she get it? so much faster than Nicodemus because in general God works the most powerfully in the people who are the most powerless in general God loves to show forth his power in the lives of messed up people the little people the people who seem so foolish they're so big to God don't tell me you're too messed up you still don't know the gift whosoever drinketh of the water I shall give will never thirst indeed the living water will become a spring in you, welling up to eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we pray for Christians that they might really follow through and execute. <laughs> we, we ask that you'd make us live what you have promised, and that is that inside us there's a spring of water making us impervious to the vicissitudes of the, of the world and the circumstances out there. But on the other hand, Father, if there's anybody here who's just to the place where they realize that they're thirsty, but they really still don't understand what this is, let them, by your help and grace, say tonight, Sir, give me this living water so I don't have to be coming up the hill to these broken cisterns of earth. And I know, Lord, that you'll answer that, and you'll answer now, Father, we pray that you'd apply this to our lives by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.